Hi, it's Greg Dalton. I'd like to hear your comments on the show, topics we should cover, and guest suggestions. You can reach me at greg at climateone.org. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Addressing climate change means overhauling all the systems around us. There are certain things that are such critical infrastructure that we have to invest in quickly, fast now, to mitigate against the climate change that, we're, that we are seeing. But that transition will disrupt the fossil fuel industry. Many unions are concerned about job losses and what follows. It's not just that a job is lost, it's that maybe now you've got to move two states away to get another job and pretty soon your community is emptied out and there's this diaspora. So how can we protect workers as they navigate through job destruction and creation? It's really about trying to make sure that whatever those 20 million jobs are being created are ones that are high road, hopefully union, good paying jobs and ones that we can you know, be proud of and ones that the workers feel like they can provide for their families. How can unions help protect workers during the energy transition? As President Biden centers his climate plans on jobs, labor unions are jockeying for position in the transition to clean energy. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers supported Trump's rollback of the Obama Clean Power Plan because many members work at coal plants. But in 2020, the union endorsed candidate Joe Biden, and it's firmly behind much of the president's climate agenda. While recognizing that climate change is a threat, other unions are skeptical of promises of a just transition, saying green jobs are typically non-union and pay far less than fossil fuel jobs. I've invited three guests to discuss this transition. Austin Kieser is assistant to the International President for Government Affairs at the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Yvette Peña O'Sullivan is executive director of the Office of the General President with LIUNA, Labor's International Union of North America. And Lee Anderson is Director of Government Affairs with Utility Workers Union of America. Today's episode was supported in part by the Climate Works Foundation. In my recent conversation with Silicon Valley venture capitalist John Doerr, he said the transition to a clean energy economy will destroy 5 million jobs in some areas, but create 20 million jobs in others. I asked Yvette Peña O'Sullivan to react to those figures. So we've really got to look at very closely the kinds of jobs that are being lost. Um, what? Because those five, it's not, oh, five million jobs gone. I mean, these are five million workers that work hard every day, who have trained for the jobs that they're in, uh, who provide for their families. Um, and it's really about trying to make sure that whatever those 20 million jobs are being created are ones that are high road, hopefully union, um, just good paying jobs and ones that we can you know be proud of and ones that the workers feel like they can provide for their families. And so I guess my, my answer to him is, well, what kind of jobs are you talking about? And that's really what I think all of us are, are always fighting and, and working towards is making sure that the jobs that are created are good jobs. Yeah, there's the statistical macro level and then there's the human level. It's not like you just walk across the street and you know get a new job. Lee Anderson, uh, let's drill into that. You know, How many permanent jobs, say, are at a coal plant compared to a wind or solar farm producing the same amount of energy. I know there's construction jobs, but I'm talking about permanent jobs. Give us a sense of coal and methane gas versus wind and solar. It depends on plant size, of course. But if you're talking about a really large coal-fired power plant, uh, that could employ, that will employ hundreds of people. You know, It could be four or 500 people for a really big one. Uh, if you're talking about uh, nuclear plants, that's hundreds for sure. Gas-fired power generation is probably going to be much, much less. Uh, most of those you can run with a couple dozen people. We actually have an apprenticeship program to train people to work on renewable power generation. We have techs who do wind, solar, 
and battery storage uh, technical work. We represent every utility wind tech in the state of Michigan. That's 50 people who are utility wind techs in the entire state of Michigan. We represent all of them. There are others, of course, who are non-utility. That's a different subject. The point there is that you know a single coal plant closure will displace hundreds of people. And for the kind of jobs you're talking about, the permanent operations and maintenance jobs, there just aren't that many. It's just the way the technology is. So something like, I heard something like one-sixth or that's like a, f- a small fraction of a coal or fossil fuel plant will, you know, uh, the comparable permanent jobs at wind or solar will be a, a small fraction of, of what the fossil generation is. That's correct, yes. Green jobs typically have been non-union, paying less than fossil fuel jobs. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the median wage for a solar installer is about $45,000 a year, while a skilled worker at a coal plant may make $82,000 a year. Yvette Peno-Sullivan, what's the potential for, for closing that gap? So to close the gap, again, we have to be careful with comparing the jobs, Greg, because in some cases you, you just you can't compare them. But our, our goal and our focus, for example, let's say in the renewable sector, is to organize and lift the wages of the renewable sector because currently non-union makes about 30% less than union. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something that we have advocated strongly for is, for example, the investment tax credit and the production tax credit, which the renewable sector relies heavily on. In the past, as they've, they've been getting these extensions, they've done so without any kind of labor protections or wage floors or anything. It's just been basically blank checks for the sector, um, thereby really making it much more difficult to organize and to unionize. Um, the beginning of 2021, we were looking at the largest wind farms that were being built. Most of them were non-union. The top 10, I should say, were non-union except one. We need to look at the new numbers and see how we've improved, but that's just to sort of give you a taste of the challenges that we've been feeling. So one of the, the, the policies that we're really excited about, and you know, hopefully we'll see parts of the Build Back Better agenda pass. There have been discussions on perhaps having the climate elements that are in there maybe move on their own, which would include some of these uh, production tax credits and investment tax credits. And hopefully um, they will have those labor protections that we've all worked really hard towards. And we think that it will uh, put the whole industry in a better path uh, to see better numbers and, and hopefully more family sustaining wages. Right. And Yvette, staying with you, you know, we hear a lot of activists and politicians advocating for a just transition. What does that mean to you? And how do you feel about that term, just transition? So, Greg, I've, I've had a, a love-hate and a little bit of love again and hate again relationship <laughs> with that term. Um, and mainly because I think that folks have evolved a little bit in how they've used it. A little bit like what I was saying before. Um, it was sort of this, this blanket solution. Oh, this new green economy is being built, just transition. Don't worry, we'll just retrain those workers and put them into these new jobs. And that would make a shudder because you can't tell someone who's been working in a sector, like what Lee was saying, for you know over 25 years trained to work in a plant, oh, you're going to go build a wind farm. It doesn't work that. And you're going to make less than 30% more, I mean, you know, 50% more than what you're making. That is not a just transition. Uh, But I think that our policymakers and our lawmakers um, have really woken up to the fact that it's not that simple. Um, It's important to have workers at the table, to have unions at the table, uh, the communities at the table to see how exactly we can transition the economy and do it smartly, 
slowly knowing that we've got climate goals that we have to achieve because we all do care about climate change, but doing so in a way that's not going to hurt working families everywhere. I think we're in a better place as we discuss um, how to transition economies and workers, but it's something that we have to be careful about. Lee Anderson, when some trades stand to see job growth and others' losses, how do you resolve those conflicts? It seems like there's this clearly tension between the emerging economy and the workers there and the, the fossil fuel workers and what they're trying to maintain. First of all, we have to acknowledge that, that tension is very real, right? And these aren't statistics. These are human beings out there embedded in communities that have families. Uh, it's their whole life. And some of these people stand to lose everything they've got because of these changes, right? So that tension is not made up. That's a very real thing. And unfortunately, it's not susceptible to easy resolution. Otherwise, we'd have done it a long time ago. And unfortunately, of course, as we do more and more of these things, as the energy systems evolve in even more ways, including transportation and all of that, the problem only grows larger. We're, we, you know, we're soon we're talking about millions of people being displaced in various ways. And to build on what Yvette said about transition, that's a topic I've actually spent most of the last decade of my life on. There are policies out there. There are things that we have worked on. There are things that we've worked on this year to try and get into the Build Back Better plan that ultimately did not make it in there because of political opposition I can talk about. And so the net result of that is that there really is not any national policy at all to address that issue. There's a historical example I could talk about. There are other nations who are doing certain things about it. But here in the U.S., there really is no plan for that. And so things unwind about the way that you think they would, which is chaotically and randomly, and they cause massive economic and social and ultimately political disruption. It's not just that a job is lost. It's that maybe now you've got to move two states away to get another job, and pretty soon your community is emptied out, and there's this diaspora of families and communities. And that's why when you look across the landscape, you see all of these places that I would term, you know, former communities. They've emptied out, right? Power plants are just one more iteration of that deindustrialization. And the results are pretty plain to see. And what are some of the solutions that you've tried to get in or other unions have tried to get in recently? And, and who was opposing them? Well, that's quite a story. I spent uh, most of the last year all day, every day trying to make that happen. Um, we look, we worked up some specific policy proposals that we sort of imported from other countries, uh, specifically Germany and Canada, where they've taken a, a national approach to it. Canada's success is mixed. Germany, I think, is doing better. But we got the ideas and said, look, the main thing that gets people in trouble is they go out of the power plant of the mind for last time and they're in a jam, right? And they need something now immediately because the bills don't stop coming. They got to pay the mortgage, right? The kid still needs asthma medicine. And so they will run to the first job they can get a hold of, right? Oftentimes it's because they need to get back on health care, right? A lot of times that ends up being, I'm going to go get a commercial driver's license and drive a truck. And the reason is I can do that very quickly. It takes about six weeks, right? Mm-hmm. So we said, look, you got to give people time. And so we put forth a policy proposal that covers five years. And for five years, we're going to keep you whole on your pay, on your retirement benefits. And that's, you know, pensions, 401ks, social security benefits. Um, we're going to keep you whole on your health care, right? Make sure you don't lose that. And we're going to offer a full education benefit, which is not just like training, right? Like if you want to, if you want to go and get a CDL or, you know, go learn how to weld or something, and that's good for you as an individual, great. But if on the other hand, you want to go to West Virginia University and get a four-year degree, if that's what's right for your circumstance, you should do that. So we're going to offer that. And this is an idea that we got from the senator that we work with. We're also going to offer that educational benefit to your children. 
And the idea there is that you break that cycle of poverty that people can otherwise fall into when they just lost one of the best jobs in the economy, right? Let alone one of the best jobs in their community, right? Okay, so you take that suite of benefits, you give it to them for five years, um, and you say, we got you here. And you, you have real time and real benefits to sort things out for what's going to make sense for you as an individual. And that's different for every person. Everybody walks out of the plant with their own algorithm to solve skill set, where they are in life, where they live, et cetera. So it sounds like good ideas. Who, who came up and opposed this? So unfortunately, yeah, there was ultimately uh, a conversation had inevitably with uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, and he was opposed to these concepts, right? He just could not find, find a way forward to support them. And so we made it that far. The next step was to move that stuff into the actual Build Back Better Act. Didn't happen because of that opposition. And now, you know, everything is so, you know, are we going to do anything at all? It looks like, it looks incredibly unlikely that that will move forward. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the role of unions in the clean energy transition. Coming up, the nuances of how the energy transition affects workers across industries. Do you work in a coal plant, a gas fire plant? Do you work in a nuke? Do you work on gas distribution? Wherever you are in that system, that evolution looks different to you, right? Just so to say that this one thing threatens that one thing, there are a lot of moving parts there that is that are changing. That's up next when Climate One continues. We're talking about the energy transition from fossil fuels to clean energy and the implications for American workers. My guests are Austin Kieser with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Yvette Peña O'Sullivan with Labor's International Union of North America, and Lee Anderson with Utility Workers Union of America. As this transition happens, Austin Kieser says some workers are more vulnerable than others. I mean, the people that are going to get hurt the most are the people um, like mine and Lee's members who work in these uh, utility plants. But not only that, but the construction workers who work refueling. So Lee was talking about how many workers are on a coal-fired power plant. Those are the those are the employees of the of the plant, right? There's constantly capital improvement projects going on in those plants. Uh, there's refueling in the nuclear industry. So there's a massive number of contract hours that also go into those and really drive the construction workforce. And because they're such sophisticated jobs, they keep um, the workforce highly skilled, right? Prepared to do heavy industrial work of all forms, not just in the power plants. So, you know, the loss of those, uh, you know, hours uh, really hurts. Uh, it hurts money going into training funds. It hurts money going into pension funds. Uh, it hurts the economy uh, writ large. And, and, you know, I won't go too far into it, but I'm from a community, Portsmouth, Ohio, um, which, you know, Lee knows well because he's had, what, five units go down just in the last couple of years in that area. But you take a community that was once just a thriving middle class, now the biggest employer is the hospital. How's the hospital growing as the population shrinks, right? It's growing like crazy because all sorts of health and, and social ills are popping up. The second biggest employer, I think, is the uh, Drug Rehabilitation Center, which is buying up old factories to make them residential inpatient centers, and then the prison. So, you know, a place where we're going to we're going to benefit is in transmission lines. You know, no matter what happens here, there's going to be a massive build out. We think we're going to need 100,000 more power linemen um, over the next decade. And so that's a that's a big thing. These, these guys are making over $100,000 a year. They're great jobs, but they're transient jobs, right? You're building them as you go through communities, right? So that's big. Manufacturing stands to, to gain a bunch. You know, just a couple decades ago, the IBW had nearly 400,000 workers in advanced manufacturing in the United States. We have 30,000 now. 
because it was advanced manufacturing, mostly in the energy and electronics sectors. And those are the jobs that, that were hemorrhaged the fastest, right? Those are the ones we lost first. And so trying to bring and redomesticate a lot of that back into the United States, and whether we site those on brownfields or whether we bring hydrogen to these brownfields or whether we do, uh, you know, we figure out how to do carbon capture and save some of these plants. We definitely need to keep the nuclear power plants online and build more of them, um, you know, at least the advanced, advanced reactors. So there, there's a lot of places that can go here. We're going to lose rail um you know rail's hard rail moves a lot of coal it moves you know heavy stuff so we've got to figure out how to retool and how to reuse rail um so we liked a lot of the proposals on on trying to bring more passenger rail to the united states a lot of the investments that the biden administration has been talking about there's a lot of room to gain here uh but it is shifting and we have to be very cognizant that we that we look at these place-based strategies and that we put jobs in the communities that are going to lose that's why it's so disappointing that you know mansion wouldn't get on board with us uh for worker retention you know retaining workers that say american electric power and west virginia is a significant number of jobs and those are the highest paying jobs in almost every one of the communities they exist in they, they drive the economy they raise all the money for the united way you know they they drive they have a compounding factor of like seven to one you know, so they're supporting all the other jobs in the community. One of the biggest energy stories in the last decade is fracked methane undercutting coal uh, on price in the marketplace. Texas frackers expanded the supply, drove prices down, and arguably have done more to close coal plants than Mike Bloomberg and the Sierra Club. You know, Lee Anderson, what has been the impact on workers of that fuel switching from coal to methane? Oh, well, you're touching on something incredibly complex. Look, the entire energy system is evolving in a whole set of different ways. And what you think about that depends on where you stand, right? Do you work in a coal plant, a gas fire plant? Do you work in a nuke? Do you work on gas distribution? Wherever you are in that system, that evolution looks different to you, right? Just so to say that this one thing threatens that one thing, there are a lot of moving parts there that is that are changing. So yes, of course, there are examples where this group of workers feels threatened by what's happening over here, or this, you know, this over here is, but that's, there's no way to really parse that apart. Evolution is very complex, and that's why it's it's going to impact, you know, a lot of people in a lot of places. And while we have to think about, you know, in broad terms, how do we manage this evolution generally? Because really, coal is just the very beginning of it, right? We haven't even spoken about transportation. That's now the largest, the largest source of emissions, right? Not power generation. U.S. production of methane gas is about 50% higher than it was a decade ago. That's good news. You know, a sense of gas burns a lot cleaner than coal, but methane leaks are undercounted and a massive problem. Methane is 80 times more damaging to our climate than carbon dioxide. Yvette Peña O'Sullivan Layuna supported a Pennsylvania law that provides more than $600 million in tax credits to companies that use natural gas and manufacture petrochemicals and fertilizer, basically supporting demand for methane for the next 30 years. So locking in fossil fuel demand for that long comes up against the Paris Climate Agreement commitments. We, you know, we have to get off fossil fuels faster. So how do you reconcile Layuna's support for 30 years of, of, of fossil fuel demand when we need to transition away from them? Well, there's a lot of technology out there, Greg, to to try and 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 
move it and do it in a way that's cleaner and more efficient. And so we need to capture the methane, use it, use our mm -hmm. technologies and not just turn away. Um, we have seen an incredible boom for our union, especially in Pennsylvania, in light of Marcellus shales and, and the big natural gas boom. We've seen a lot of job growth um, in the pipeline sector because of it. So I do think um, that as we um, diversify our energy portfolio more. Natural gas is going to be here for a while. And so while some want to just turn it off right away for the name and for the sake of climate change, um, we strongly just believe that that we need it to be part of our energy mix um, for a while as we figure out how to do it cleaner and better. Austin, you know, experts have said to me that the biggest obstacle to electrifying buildings in California and elsewhere is the opposition of the pipefitters union who want to keep installing methane gas lines into new and renovated buildings. We invited them to participate in this conversation. They didn't reply to several requests, but how much of an obstacle do you see as pipefitters on electrifying buildings and other things trying to hang on to uh, gas when electrification can be a lot cleaner? So, I mean, it's an interesting question. You might think that we'd be on opposite sides of this, but we were not um, with the uh, United Association of uh, Plumbers and Pipefitters because we represent uh, almost all of the gas distribution workers in California, right? So, uh, when the utility companies are both gas electric, um, we have a significant number of workers who work on that distribution those distribution systems in those cities, uh, moving those moving that gas to those buildings. And it's not just us. There's a lot of residents. There's other folks who uh, are not on the side of moving towards electric everything. Gas is cheaper in a lot of cases for many of the uh, functions that it provides. Chefs, for instance, and a lot of those downtown restaurants do not want uh, to be cooking with electric. And uh, so, but, but induction cookstoves are the new thing. Some of them are get, getting excited about yeah, induction. Yeah, well, if they, if they get nice and they start making them in the United States, um, which they might make some of them, I shouldn't say that, um, you know, we might be able to uh, to move our uh, move our platform a little bit. But no, we um, we represent uh, tens of thousands of gas workers uh, in California alone. And so, um, you know, we're we're on the same page there. And, you know, gas is becoming very clean. I mean, you look at a, a gas furnace, you know, in the 1980s, what was the, how efficient was it? You know, 40% efficient. Uh, you had to have a flue piped out of your house so that you could get rid of uh, any of the excess gases. Now they're, you know, 98, 99% efficient. You don't even need a flue out of your home. They're so clean. But let me, let me just jump in there, Austin. There, there's a lot of research coming out that burning gas over a cook stove, you know, indoor air quality is not uh, regulated in this country. That's like outdoor air quality. And there's a lot of research about cooking over a gas stove is is harmful. Yeah, and, and I, I couldn't I couldn't specifically get into um, you know how harmful a, a gas home cook cook stove is. Although you know we grew up using them when I was a kid, and I uh, seem to be all right. I don't know. I think there are a lot of other things in our economy. Um, you know, as Lee said, transportation is a big one. Um, you know, we're burning more gas in cars than we are anything else. So let's figure out how to clean those up and electrify those. I would say that'd be a good first step. And and places like PG&E are doing that at massive scale, and the ports of Los Angeles are, and we're doing a bunch of that work. So you know, we're happy to be uh, cleaning up the environment, but I just don't think that's the right place to tackle things right now. Uh, Yvette Peno Sullivan, your union has some strange bedfellows, including the American Petroleum Institute and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which have long denied or downplayed climate risks that disproportionately harm people of color and low-income communities. So how do you balance, you know, working with API and the U.S. Chamber, given their posture on climate legislation and energy? We basically agree to agree 
on the areas where we agree and we just disagree where we don't. Um, I think that for both of those organizations, though, and I'm not going to speak for them, I think their positions on climate change have evolved. And I think they've um, are trying to do better. Um, but really, we've worked with them to try and get as much uh, finance in our country's infrastructure as possible. The big bipartisan infrastructure bill was really a, a drop the mic moment for our union, um, which, you know, like Austin was saying, we we build it all, really. We're in all sectors. And so for La Una, um, heavy highway is an important part of uh, what our members do. Uh, we do build roads and bridges, and, and we think this is an opportunity to make it all more efficient. Um, there's uh, $39 billion in transit and, and a lot of money, $66 billion in rail. And so there's a lot of opportunity um, in this bill to, to try and be more efficient um, in our transportation sector and hopefully cleaner. And of course, there's the electric vehicle, um, you know, over $7.5 billion in, in investments there. So hopefully we'll have charging stations across the country that we'll all be building um, and seeing really a, a, a cleaner fleet hopefully move through our shiny new highways that Layuna members will hopefully be building. Lee Anderson, what does electrification of transportation mean for, for your members? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, who is going to build out and, and then operate and maintain the, the electric vehicle infrastructure? Who's going to do that? Is it going to be utilities? Are the car companies going to do that? Is it going to be third parties entirely, right? Mm-hmm. That's a big question mark, a big unknown. I mean, one yeah, thing, Tesla's, Tesla's non-union and they got the biggest charge station network out there. Well, even setting aside the labor issues, you know, one thing that utilities do very well is they maintain extremely large physical infrastructure systems, right? That's the business model, right? Car companies, that's not really their business model. But it's not at all clear that utilities are going to do that. So mm-hmm, if it's going to be mm-hmm. other companies, well, then that's not going to be our jobs. It's probably going to be non-union work. On the other hand, mm-hmm. if one of our utility employers says, no, we're going to get into that, we're going to build that infrastructure, maintain it, great. That's probably going to be union jobs. But that is, that is a giant question mark. And then the second thing for our members, it's a little bit overlooked about our union, but we have members work in the ethanol industry and ethanol refineries. And I don't mean this to be a thing about petroleum or ethanol. It's not really the point. The point is about elect- is about liquid fuels, right? And and what that means if that all goes away, right? I mean, the refineries are just the, be- the beginning of it. Those jobs go away and then you've got, but then you've got all the follow on. And to use ethanol as an example, because that's where our members are, that is a very large market. Well, and biodiesel as well, for that matter. That's a very large market for corn and soybeans in this country, right? Now, look out across the rural landscape out there across, you know, farm country and see what that looks like compared to where it was 50 years ago. That's my personal lived experience. I'm from a place that's so rural in southern Iowa that you can't really get there from here. And it has emptied out, I am here to tell you, right? But there is still a very large market there for corn and soybeans in the form of a number of ethanol and biodiesel um, facilities up and down there. Let's hypothetically say we're going to do away with liquid fuels and all that's going to go away. What does that follow on to the to those what remains of those ag communities out there? Right, nothing good. You know the pace and timeline. You all seem to agree that there's a transition happening, and and the the difference seems to be about you know sort of pace of of the transition. Yvette Peña Sullivan, you said that 2050 is certainly better than 2035. But what happens if other countries transition faster? Some worry that China will dominate electric cars and batteries and the energy technologies that will you know drive the 21st century economy. Doesn't that put American workers at risk? If this isn't there a risk of going too slow, also. 
Sure, I, I think there is a, a risk that that may happen, and and I guess if 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 China decides to go that route, then let's bring it on. We're happy to to compete and and try and do better. Again, it goes back to just doing things thoughtfully, uh, and so 2050 gives us a little bit more more time. But you know, Greg, we may meet it at 2030 with the kind of speed and direction and investments that we're doing as a country. Uh, we may be able to do even better, but we just again need to be thoughtful and not be arbitrary about how we move forward in trying to meet those goals. So as we wrap up, I want to bring this, you know, uh, on Climate One, we often talk about systems and we've been talking about bringing things down to the personal level, the workers you represent. So I'd like to bring it down to a personal level with you. You know, Austin, how much urgency do you personally feel about climate disruption? I mean, it's it's real. I mean, so we, um, our power linemen go into these storms, they're the first ones into these storms and these natural disasters that we're facing every day. They go in and de-energize and make sure that the uh, you know the waters and the and are safe. That pumps are back on and chemical facilities, that hospitals and critical infrastructures back up and running immediately, uh, so the other first responders can do their jobs. Right. So we're usually stationed outside. Uh, you know, sometimes thousands and thousands of power linemen who go live in their trucks and work around the clock uh, for long periods of time. Wow. And the yeah. frequency of those disruptions uh, is obvious, right? There's no doubt that there's climate change, whether it's coastal, you know, whether it's major storms in places like Iowa, um, they're just damaging crops and, and uh, destroying all sorts of things and major winter storms that are more frequent. And we don't want to, you know, we don't want to continue to see that happen, right? But we also know there's major infrastructure investments that have to happen here in order to um, defend against what's happening, whether that's elevating infrastructure on coastal areas or protecting critical infrastructure in other ways. Uh, making sure there's redundancy in the grid um, so that we can continue to feed electricity into areas um, if one if one part of the system is completely damaged. Um, so look, there's a lot of things that will happen here. There's there's uh, significant threats. There's opportunities uh, for you know investments, and we do have to have it on a pretty rapid time frame. Uh, it's unfortunate though that some people are focused on the wrong things. Right? There are certain things that are such critical infrastructure that we have to invest in quickly, fast now. Um, to mitigate against, you know, the, the climate change that we're, that we are seeing. Build Back Better is the first real industrial policy uh, proposal that this country's seen. A comprehensive industrial policy. Uh, it's unfortunate, you know, that we're in a negotiating quagmire uh, in the Senate. And, um, you know, we hope we can get at least, like uh, Yvette said, pieces of it through. We did get infrastructure, which is just sort of, you know, a plus up of a lot of things. There's a lot of investments in there that are going to do really good things. Electric grid, uh, in the case that I'm talking about, is really a significant infrastructure that our country cannot run without electricity. Yvette, you know, how is climate affecting you and the people that you represent? Um, similar to Austin, really, because again, when we have such a diverse workforce, um, we're doing it all. But you know, in, in a lot of the communities that have been impacted um, by climate change, I you know, with the hurricanes and 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 so forth. I mean, our members are living in those communities, and then they're working in those communities to rebuild it. Um, so that's definitely one way. Uh, that that we're sort of at the forefront of that, and then of course, just the mere fact that we are in just about every single um, sector of energy um, that there is, doing the work and trying to do it better and cleaner and more efficiently. And Lee, you know, how has climate affected you or people you care about? You spoke about rural Iowa. How is climate affecting the people you care about and yourself? Well. I mean, there's two parts of it. I think Austin pretty well covered the waterfront on the physical weather, physically disrupting physical things. That's obvious, right? And it certainly does. I mean, our members went down to to Puerto Rico 
after that terrible storm and stood, as they put it themselves, you know, we stood the poles back up and they'll probably stand until the next storm, right? So that's, there's no end to that. But the second thing though, is that the other way in which this causes dis disruption is our response to climate change. Our response or lack thereof to climate change causes its own disruptions. And, and that's what I've been talking about earlier. You know, if you don't have a plan for how to do this, it just unwinds chaotically and leaves absolute devastation in its wake. You know, Austin spoke about a few of the social ills. That's real at the human. If you want to get down to the real human level, people's incidents of, of divorce, alcoholism, spousal abuse, bankruptcy, all the terrible things go up in the wake of these, you know, disruptions. You know, the communities come apart. It's terrible. And, and our lack of policy, you know, is feeding that. You got to have a plan for how to deal with this, or your response or lack thereof will create disruption. That you know, <laughs> the the physical climate disruption is only the start of it. Well, Lee Anderson, Yvette Pena, O'Sullivan, and Austin Keyser, thanks for coming on Climate One and sharing your insights about the personal level of workers uh, going through this energy transition. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to a conversation about unions navigating the clean energy transition. Coming up. How to improve the job prospects in renewable industries. The reason why some of the so-called green jobs are non-union is because most jobs that are in blue-collar occupations are non-union and low-wage. You know, we think of green as different, but it isn't. That's up next when Climate One continues. Norman Rogers has worked as a union member in the fossil fuel industry for more than 20 years. He's extinguished fires, done dangerous jobs, and negotiated better compensation for workers as a union representative. He currently works at the Marathon Petroleum Refinery in Santa Ana, California. He also serves as second vice president of United Steelworkers, representing workers across oil and gas industries. I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the people. Once being inside the refinery, I became involved. I was on the fire department there. I was and still am on the Joint Health and Safety Committee. I'm on the negotiating committee. So that's kept it interesting and engaging. There's been transitions prior to what's currently being discussed. If you look at the term icebox, that used to be because that's what it was. That's what refrigeration was. It was a box and you put a block of ice in it. We transitioned away from that. You try and find a public telephone, we transition away from that. So the change is going on all the time. It's how we plan for it that needs to be looked at. And keeping in mind in areas where we haven't planned for it, where we've seen auto plants close, steel mills close, coal mines close, with no plan in place, what's coming up ahead is going to be bigger than what we've seen in the past, we're still looking for the answer to the question, if I lose my job on Friday, where do I turn up on Monday? Because there's all the talk about what's to come. Well, we'll put up solar panels. Oh, we'll insulate homes and we'll do all those things. And those things will happen, but they're not there yet. And we've already had folks lose their jobs. The fear that I have is that the oil companies will keep saying, oh, we're okay, we're okay, things are good, things are good. It's not gonna be the oil company saying, okay, we'll close our doors. Uh, they're gonna run 
as much as they can for as long as they can. Things are tipping because there's electric vehicles. United Airlines had a flight and they did it with sustainable aviation fuel. They didn't have any petroleum product in it. So what I see happening is that little nibbling away on the demand side. The concern is that the timeliness isn't there, that there's a gap, there's a lag. If the jobs at the refinery go away and there's nothing there to replace them, that's when communities suffer because the tax base goes away. Libraries, police stations. So there's a bigger issue at hand than just people losing their jobs. What needs to happen as we move forward is that there's a plan in place for everybody where they are in their career. The concern is there because we've seen it happen in other industries when companies go under that they raid the pension fund. So we need to make sure the pension funds are there for folks that are close. Folks that are too young to retire yet, then that's where the retraining comes in to do something else. And those just starting out, then they can be redirected into other areas. These are folks that have provided fuel for whoever's gotten on a jet and flown overseas for a vacation, whoever's gone on a cruise, gotten in an RV, any of those things. And everybody has benefited from that. Discussion needs to be had about how we refer to folks that we need as allies. And we need everyone that we can get as allies, whether they work in a refinery or outside. The problems that exist between folks that believe there are climate issues and the folks that don't believe that's the case, all go away if there's a safe place for them to land. And you will have issues even with the folks that believe there are climate problems that need to be addressed because they too have lost their jobs. All of this comes down to somebody standing in a ballot box and saying, yes, I'll do this, or no, I won't do that. And if them saying, yes, I'll do this, means that their job goes away, it's not going to happen. That was Norman Rogers, second vice president of United Steelworkers in Santa Ana, California. That segment was produced by Aman Azar. We invited Carol Zabin, director of the Green Economy Program at the UC Berkeley Labor Center, to give us a broader picture of the role of unions in collective bargaining. She spoke with Climate One's Ariana Brocious. Green jobs, like those in wind and solar, have tended to be non-union and typically lower wage than fossil fuel jobs. Why is that? Well, first of all, it's not true that all solar or wind jobs are non-union and low wage. And in fact, in California, most of the large utility scale solar and wind have been built union under project labor agreements. And in those cases, those are good middle-class family-supporting jobs with health care benefits and pensions and the whole shebang in terms of what makes a job a good job. In other places, that work has not necessarily gone union. And therefore, particularly in jobs like in construction, those blue-collar jobs can be uh, quite low wage. Renewable energy is a, is a newer industry, newer field, and I'm wondering if there's a tendency for, when there's a new industry, for it to take a while for unions to develop within the industry and advocate for their members. Well, certainly very few industries start off unionized, but I don't really think that's the correct way to frame it. Historically, yes, it's true that the fossil fuel industry uh, has been unionized. It was unionized with decades of, of struggle. 
But the reason why I think some of the so-called green jobs are non-union is because most jobs that are in blue-collar occupations are non-union and low-wage. You know, we think of green as different, but it isn't. I mean, renewable energy is a different form of energy, but it mostly takes the same kind of workers and even some of the same developers and employers uh, that natural gas power plants, for example, have had. So I think the problem is that we now live in a very, very unequal labor market with lots of low-wage jobs, particularly in blue-collar occupations. And I might add there's a racial dimension to this, that there's poorer jobs, of course, for folks of color uh, in general. And so we're dealing with an economy that produces a lot of inequality uh, in the labor market. And so new industries are subject to those same forces. And it's only if we're very intentional about changing that, that change will happen. Otherwise, you get what you got. Well, so we've seen in the pandemic more power in some cases shifting toward workers and um, unions seem to be making inroads at places like Amazon and Starbucks. And so I'm wondering if you think this will change, if you think that green jobs will begin to become unionized or if some of these some of these jobs may reach more parity. I understand you're saying that there's a difference in the type of job. That part maybe isn't going to be changed. But what potential do you see for maybe workers at Tesla for example, to unionize? Well, Tesla is owned by a very, very anti-union entrepreneur. And so he he has fought and he'll probably continue to fight unionization as hard as he can. I think in general, we have a big opportunity to, to generate good union jobs in the sectors that are impacted by climate policy. I mean, for the first time, we have a president who's really willing to to say, hey, let's produce good union jobs in clean energy and clean transportation and clean other sectors and not assume, like has so often happened in the past, that green jobs are good jobs automatically. So... Because climate policy is a dramatic intervention by government into the economy to try to lower the emissions produced by, you know, our our heavy emitting sectors, energy, transportation, manufacturing, buildings, and others, we already are implementing policies in those industries. And we can incorporate good labor policies to encourage employers who invest in training and pay middle-class wages and provide benefits, etc. We can encourage those employers and discourage kind of the low-road, low-wage employers. Is that how you think it might come about? I mean, just because we have this, you know, support from President Joe Biden, you know, how, how do we go about making that happen in reality? Well, there's very, very particular tools that policy tools that you can use. 
and they differ in different industries, but let me give you two kind of contrasting examples. One is the one I already mentioned in renewables, which is mostly the skilled construction trades, electricians, iron workers, those kinds of skilled construction trades that learn their craft through state and federally certified apprenticeship. We can encourage the use of project labor agreements, the use of apprenticeship, the use of prevailing wage requirements in our public investments and our public incentives for renewables. So that's one example. Construction is a very interesting and unique industry because it has a whole set of institutions really based on our wonderful, wonderful apprenticeship system, which is really the gold standard in training. It's really the college for construction workers. And we can tap into the set of contractors who use apprenticeship, whose workers are trained through apprenticeship. And that kind of automatically gives you the contractors who invest in their workforce, who pay a family supporting wage and benefits, and who in general are union. Not all apprenticeship programs are union, but most of them are. In other industries that are really important for combating climate change, there are also tools, and they kind of mimic the tools that are in construction, the tools and institutions, I would say, that are in, in construction. So for example, um, there's a new cluster of electric bus manufacturers in Los Angeles, um, really driven by requirements and mandates for moving towards electric vehicles by transit agencies. And LA uh, Metro, the, the public transit agency, wrote into their bidding requirements for who they were going to buy the electric vehicles uh, from which manufacturer they were going to choose, they wrote in some employment language that asked these manufacturers to say what what are their commitments to workers. And as a consequence of that, they were able to start purchasing electric vehicles from good employers who, again, invest in training, have better wages, make commitments to hiring, for example, formerly incarcerated uh, workers and women workers. And that has been a tool by government through procurement. Some people call it procurement for the public good, whereby we can meet our climate goals and also at the same time incorporate labor standards that can ensure that we're not using government resources to produce poverty jobs. So you've mentioned construction a couple times, and I'm curious, you know, there's obviously when a new, let's say a solar or wind farm comes online, there's a lot of jobs maybe at the start in the construction trades, getting the thing operational. But over time, those plants tend to require many fewer workers than a coal plant, for example. So how do we handle that? The the sort of inevitability that some of these things just don't require the same number or the same kind of, of workers? We have to deal with it head on and and not not paper over it. That's for sure. I think with very careful planning, with very careful industrial planning, and with labor unions and community groups at the table in negotiating transitions, we can have some good outcomes. Uh, it's not easy, and 
the loss of jobs is really devastating, not just for the worker, him or herself, but for families and really entire communities. So it is a really, really serious challenge. And we have a lot of examples that have failed and few that have been successful. Is there a successful example you comes to mind that you've that we've seen? Well, our military base closures are held up as an example uh, from the eighties, and, and you know the reason that worked was because government was involved. Right, there were resources to help that transition, and it was a planned transition. It wasn't just left to the market, which is what we see so often. Uh, occurring with, you know, a little bit of safety net, you know, unemployment insurance, which our safety net in the U.S. is pretty ineffective and inadequate. You know, there are examples in in Europe, and it's really interesting that the unions in Europe aren't as scared and aren't as distrustful of the changes that climate policy is proposing because they do have good safety net systems and they do have industrial planning tables so that, for example, when there's technological change that may eliminate some particular tasks, there's a mechanism by which workers are involved in figuring out and have a voice at the table in figuring out how jobs have to change and where uh, workers can go to keep working and using their skills, and be kept whole. So the union representatives we talked to agree that climate's an issue, but they want to protect their workers' current jobs, or at least slow down this transition. Of course, we're facing increasing urgency in the need to address the climate crisis. So how do we resolve that paradox? Well, first of all, I don't think that that's the slowdown is really an accurate portrayal. You get unions on board and you'll speed things up. That's what's happened in California. If you ask the legislators who were involved in the renewable energy, the renewable portfolio standard, which is the single policy that has had the most impact on reducing our greenhouse gas emissions in California, labor was at the table using its political capital to push Uh, bigger and stronger standards. So you get an organized constituency like labor on board and you can move things quicker. There are some unions who, who are concerned about efforts to shut down production of coal or of, I'm more familiar in California with uh, oil extraction and refining. And their argument is, look, if we shut down production before we reduce our demand for gas and other oil products, then all we're doing is shifting production to some other region or country. And that is a dangerous path because those other regions or countries may have even poorer environmental standards and poorer labor standards. So what I have heard unions say is not to slow down our efforts to combat climate change, but rather really, really focus on reducing demand for oil and gas products. 
So what are your recommendations for how to have a transition to a low carbon economy while protecting good paying jobs? As we develop the specific policies to address greenhouse gas emissions in all the sectors of the economy that emit a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, we really have to incorporate labor standards and labor policies that result in good jobs in those industries that we are trying to change and that create pathways into those good jobs for folks who have been excluded to ensure the racial equity can occur. And we deal head on with the possibility and reality of displacement of fossil fuel workers, which are a minority of workers, uh, but who shouldn't have to bear the whole cost of this major transition. And how do we do that? We keep them whole, depending on their situation, uh, via bridges to retirement, via wage insurance if they can't find a comparable job, and via serious retraining for those who are in, in a position to really change careers. So, And they have to be at the table in terms of uh, economic diversification in their communities. They need a voice and they need to feel like they are part of this future economy and not just stuck in the old uh, fossil fuel dependent economy. Carol Zabin is director of the Green Economy Program at the UC Berkeley Labor Center. She's also on the executive council of the California Workforce Development Board. Carol, thanks for joining us on Climate One. Thank you very much. We've been talking about the role of unions navigating the transition to a green energy economy. This episode was supported by the Climate Works Foundation. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard, depressing, difficult, complicated, but it's also critical to addressing the climate emergency. You can help raise our profile and get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review on Apple or by telling a friend about our show. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox and Tyler Reed. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>